0: The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship located in Sunnyvale, California. To bring you up to speed, we've been going through the book of Genesis, just the first three chapters, because uh, it's a long book, 50 chapters, and, uh, but the first three chapters are significant in terms of being so foundational for understanding the rest of the Bible, because it introduces so many important things at the very beginning from very time of creation, the introduction of so many foundational truths. And so that has been a blessing to be studying these foundational truths in Genesis 1 through 3. And they're still relevant for us today in the most important areas of life and of human relationships for us. So I trust you are being edified as well as we go through. Today we're looking at Genesis. We are already get a load of this. We are already in Genesis chapter 2 verse 18. Since, what did we start in the summer? And last week, if you weren't here, we looked at Genesis 2.18, part 2, and we zeroed in on the all-important phrase where on day 6, God had created Adam first. Literally, God created Adam, a real human being, the first man, and he literally did it out of the, the earth, dirt from the ground, formed Adam, Supernaturally breathed breathed the breath of life into Adam. Adam became a living soul. God had Adam do some duties and functions and responsibilities. And then God declared, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man or for Adam to be alone. And so that's what we talked about last week. Why it was not good for Adam to be alone all by himself. And then today we're really going to emphasize and answer that question of how God fills that void Where God's going to meet Adam's need it wasn't good for Adam to be alone Therefore he needs uh, a partner and God today we're going to see How God gives Adam a partner the first time thousands of years ago And then we'll see the purpose that goes along with that. So let's go ahead and look at Genesis chapter 2 18 through 25 And follow along as I read Remember this is day six After God had made the first man Adam and the garden of Eden. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then God took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. As I've been studying this passage for weeks now, and again, this was written by Moses in Hebrew. So I've been studying it in the Hebrew language, and I'm just reminded of how much detail there is in the Hebrew language that we lose in translation that's so important. But meditating on these truths for three, four weeks now, I'm just reminded as a pastor, as a Christian, how many counseling situations I receive or have received over the years or even in my own life. That the answers to those counseling questions, those practical questions of life, the practical challenges of life, many of those answers are found right here in this passage in Genesis chapter 2. So it was a reminder, again, there's benefit to studying Genesis 1 through 3 and all the practical implications. Because in effect, what we have here in Genesis chapter 2 is God not only creating the first humans, Adam and Eve, man and woman, but God creating the first marriage. what's more foundational to humanity and the perpetuation of the human race than marriage from God's point of view. It is so rich. Today we're going to, I don't even want to say that, I don't even want to commit myself to this, but we're going to try to look at verses 18 through 25. Don't hold me to that though. I might get stuck in verse 18 again. But if you have a bulletin, we got, this passage, five main points that I'm trying to glean from this amazing miracle that God did when he created the first woman. And we looked at the first one, verses 18 to 20. Actually, we camped out on verse 18. And point number one was God's plan for marriage. The title of the sermon is When God Made Marriage. He created it, literally. The historical context of the Bible makes it clear this really happened. This is true history. This is the way it is. Doesn't matter if we're in the minority of believing it. This is not fiction. This is not myth. This is not legend. This is not fairy tale. This is not wishful thinking. It's true history. Yeah, you'll be mocked. People will call you idiotic, uneducated, and all kinds of other pejorative terms. That's okay. It, it really happened this way. This was the first marriage. This is true history from God's point of view. He was the only one that was there. He's a reliable witness. So we can be secure in that reality. That's why it's so important. And I already talked about how Jesus believed Genesis 1 through 3 was literal and taught from Genesis 1 through 3 to solve the problems of his day. The Apostle Paul many times quotes from Genesis 1, 2, and 3 to address the most important issues of his days, these pastoring churches and especially problems when Paul's dealing with very common problems with Marriage problems, relationship problems, the roles of men and women, the identity of male and female, their function in society, sexual immorality, the parameters of sex as given by God. He keeps going leadership in the church, leadership in the home. Every time he goes back to Genesis 1 through 3, that's the foundation. If you don't take this as literal, then you can't answer those questions in a real substantive manner according to reality and history. If you believe in evolution, you can't go back to this as a source of truth. And then you circumvent and undermine the whole, the whole thing, the whole scenario. You have no root to universal, unchanging truth. So that's our privilege today. So let's go ahead and look at how it was when God made the first marriage. We looked at point number one, God's plan for marriage, and that was partnership Partnership because there was a void, there was an aloneness, God created all the other creatures and they had a partner, male and female together, male and female birds and land animals so that they could perpetuate their species and God's intention was to do the same thing with humanity, his greatest creation, and after creating just a man, that was not sufficient, that wasn't adequate, man by himself didn't fully reflect the image and the glory of God as he intended. And also Adam by himself couldn't fulfill all the basic mandates God gave humanity in the beginning To be vice regents on the earth, representing him on the earth. Because God's intention when he created humanity was to represent him on the earth. And with all those commands we already went over. To fill the earth, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, cover the earth, subdue the earth, rule over the earth. And Adam couldn't do that by himself alone. And that's why we saw it was good. It was not good that man would be alone. So God's going to fix that problem in this passage as he creates the first So let's go ahead and just finish point number one, God's plan for marriage. His intention was partnership between one man, one woman. And so verses 18 to 20 says, The Lord God said it is not good for the man, Adam, to be alone. So God was going to solve that problem, and he did. This is on day six. Therefore, I will make make him a helper suitable for him. And out of the ground, the Lord God, but before he makes woman... uh, Out of the ground, verse 19, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky. And this is a key phrase. God brought all these animals to man. That phrase. He brought the animals to man. That same phrase is used in verse 22. When he brought the woman to man. First he brings the animals to man. Particularly the birds of the air. He brought those to Adam. where Adam was in the Garden of Eden. And he also brought the wild beasts to Adam. We talked about last week, he didn't bring the domesticated animals to Adam because they already existed in the Garden of Eden. Because it specifically says he brought the wild beasts and the birds to Adam. And then the domesticated animals were also used in this lesson that God taught Adam, verse 19. As he brought all the animals to Adam for what purpose? to see what Adam would call them, name them. Again, he's exercising his authority, his delegated authority by God to rule over creation. And so as Adam saw all the animals, he named the animals, and that was its name. Not only was he exercising his authority that God said rule over all creation, God was teaching Adam something. Adam was learning. He, After all, he was only one day old. No, after all, he was only four hours old. He's learning by this going through all this catalog of all these animals and he was awakened to a realization that he didn't have, number one, he didn't have a partner. He was by himself. He learned what aloneness was, but he also learned what compatibility was. Think about it. God brought all these animals to him. God brought the creepy animals to him. God brings the snakes However, whatever function, however they ambulated at the time before they lost their legs. And Adam looks at the snakes. They are before. All these animals are before him in his presence immediately before him where he can see them. So it's face to face. That's very important in terms of the terminology. Adam is face to face with all these animals as they come, whether it was one by one or two by two. he sees the lions and they're on all fours and they have to look up from down to see Adam as he stands made in God's image looking at the animal that's on all fours. Then he sees even a chimpanzee as it's bending over. As He looks at Adam, made in God's image, looking down at the animals. Then uh, the crawling and creeping creatures and the, the mice and the rodents and the rats and the squirrels as he's looking down as a representative of God throughout this whole process. Even the larger animals, the elephants, would be on four legs before the man who was upright representing God made in the image of God, and going through this process over and over again, Adam realized that there was not a creature, a living creature, comparable to him. There wasn't one that was like him. They were all totally different than he was. There were none who could look him eye to eye, face to face. There was no perfect counterpart. There was no complement to him, and that became readily apparent and clear. And that was God's purpose, and that was the lesson that God was trying to teach Adam. You're alone. Not only that, you got, you're got you not totally alone because you got all these creatures, but you're alone in terms of the purpose that I made you for. You don't have a partner to complement you perfectly to fulfill the purpose by which I created you. And so that's what Adam learned through this whole lessons 18 through 20. He learned what it meant to be alone. He learned the need for partnership, and then he's going to learn the fulfillment of partnership through marriage by God. So God brings all these animals to him to see what he would call them. He names them. Verse 20, the man gave names to all the domesticated animals. The dogs and the sheep and the horses and the cows and all those. And then also he gave names to the birds of the sky. And he also gave names to the, every beast of the field, the wild animals. And here's the conclusion. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. So that phrase is repeated twice. Verse 18. God said, I'm going to make a helper suitable for him because there isn't one. And in verse 20, Adam concludes and realizes there is not found a helper suitable for him. So what was the first lesson in Bible interpretation we talked about weeks ago? It's translation, getting an accurate translation. So I want to translate from the Hebrew text this very challenging phrase in verse 18 and verse... Uh, the one we just read in verse 20... Verse 18 where it says, God said, I will make him a helper suitable for him. Suitable for him. What does that mean? Well, we better understand what it means because it's so foundational and basic. God is going to make a woman, and her purpose is defined in those terms, a helper suitable for the man. So if you're a woman this morning, whether you're married or single, doesn't matter. This defines who you are in your very essence, your very nature from the very beginning of what when God made the first woman. This is what a woman is to be even if she's married or not, in terms of the fundamentals there. So we need to understand clearly what it means, a helper suitable for him, because that's what a woman would be. problem is this is a very difficult phrase to translate in Hebrew because in verse 18, a helper, that's clear. That's the Hebrew word ezer. Ezer, that means helper. There's no ambiguity there. Ezer. And that's a good word, helper. There's no inferiority contained in that term Ezer. As a matter of fact, many times in the Old Testament, God is called Ezra. God is my Ezra, God is my helper. God is the helper of his people. Many over 10 times it occurs in the Psalms where the psalmist is talking about God is my helper. He is my helper. God, you are my helper. Thank you for being my helper. The, one, the idea that God is the one who provides for, protects, rescues. Uh, helping that which is in need, that who, the one who is inferior, the one who there's a void missing, who needs help. Implied there is a weakness and somebody comes along to help. That's the same word, ezer. So to say that a woman is a helper means she's inferior is wrong because that's not how the Old Testament word is used. First and foremost, it is used of God. And it's used in certain names in the Old Testament, like, like Eliezer, Eliezer, we say. Eliezer, Eli, God. Azer, helper, God is my helper. So Abraham in Genesis 15, the main servant in his home who would inherit all of his property was Eliezer, God is my helper. Exodus 18, Moses had two sons. Gershom was the first and then Eliezer, God is my helper. So what was a perfect partner to be to Adam who was alone to fill the void? God said first and foremost, she will be an Azer. She will be a helper to the man. So if you are mar- if you're a married woman that's that's that hasn't changed. God created you to be a helper to your man, a helper to your husband. Not inferior, but in terms of your role. That's what you do. That's where you specialize. That's where you maximize and fulfill your potential for which God made you. More so than anything else. To be his helper. It's the priority relationship, being a helper to your husband in the will of God. This is before sin. So Eve, for a while, or this woman, was the perfect helper to her man, to her husband. But that's the main thing that needs to be. And it's a simple truth, yet it is a profound truth. Because when you have marriage problems, maybe some of you have marriage problems occasionally. It usually comes down to your roles. Understanding who you are, what your role is, what God's design is, what God's will is for you. And you can't just stay in the New Testament. You've got to go back to the beginning because that's what Paul and Jesus did And talking about these issues, and it goes right here. Well, what was a woman created for? She's created to be a helper to her husband. To minister to him. To aid him. To fulfill, uh, his, help him fulfill his role and mandate that God gave him. He can't do it alone. He's incomplete without the woman. He needs the help of a woman. Two are better than one. So that's what it means to be a helper. So this is very practical. This is great. This will help your marriage. Okay, wife, whether you've been married one year or 42 years. In terms of your main responsibility in your family and in your relationships, have you recently thought, you know what? God has first and foremost made me a helper to my husband. Because that's true. Yeah, you're supposed to help the children, but when you get married, usually you have your husband first. You don't have children yet. So you're helping him first. Then the kids come, and then hopefully they go. You're back to just the two of you, and you're still hopefully fulfilling your biblical mandate of helping your husband. Foundational, basic, we forget it. It's so easy. So Christian wife. Christian wife is in the will of God and pleases God when she helps her husband. She's committed to helping her husband. Solves a lot of problems. Prevents a lot of problems. Bring supernatural unity in your marriage if you understand your role and accept that role, embrace that role, love that role, pray about that role, fulfill that role, confess when you don't fulfill that role, and, uh uh-oh, get this, and are humble enough to be willing to ask your husband, am I helpful to you? Am I helping you? In what ways can I better help you? And, whoa, this is the scariest question of all for women who are married. Is there anything I do that is not helpful to you? Is there anything I do that undermines what God is trying to do for you? Because you can ask women, you do it in counseling, Christian wives, talking about problems in their marriage, and then, uh, well, are you a help to your husband? Yes. Whoa, I barely even finished the question. Are you a help to your husband? That's basic, fundamental, priority. Yes. He doesn't help me. Okay, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm the one asking the questions here. Let's go on. How do you know that you are a help to your husband? Ooh. The best way to find out if you're a help to your husband, guess what, is to ask your husband. And that's kind of scary, or it can be. Or ask your hubby in a time of peace and harmony and walking in the spirit. Here, honey, I want to maximize my potential for which God created me. And can you write down three to seven ways that I could be most helpful to you? And could you also write down things that I do that are not helpful? That, that's hard to do. It takes humility. Revolutionize your marriage if you do it. A lot of women don't want to do that for whatever reason. And then to hear it from him. He's going to know best, so that's, that's what I'm talking about. why this is so practical and helpful. This is God's design. God created the wife to be a helper in the marriage relationship. There was a some of the, an author and a, a woman named Elizabeth George. Some of you may know her. She actually was is married to a mentor of mine when I was in seminary years ago. I had more classes from Jim George than any professor. And several several small mentorship, discipleship classes I had with him, and so he had a huge impact in my life. And we had the privilege to spend time with him and his wife, Debbie and I, Elizabeth George, and she raised a couple of sweet daughters. And she headed the women's ministry at Grace Community Church at the time. And she had her roles down very clearly from scripture. She's just very simplistic. Here's what the Bible says, here's my role. I'm married. And priority number one is my walk with God, pleasing to him. And what God wants me to do is to be a helper to my husband, Jim. And so I heard her from uh, up front many times talking to married couples, but also privately many times she would tell the principle by which she lived that in terms of a marriage, you want a healthy marriage? You want a thriving, growing marriage? You want a forgiving marriage? Then fulfill your roles and be committed to it and embrace it enthusiastically. In accordance with scripture. So what she did early on in her marriage. She decided God made me to be a helper to Jim. Therefore every single morning before the day begins. I'm going to ask Jim. Is there tell me one thing I can do to you. That will really help you today. And she established a pattern. And she began to do that every single day. And she encouraged women at the church. To do the same thing if they were married. Then it becomes a pattern. A pattern and a habit, and a joy, and God blesses it. She would challenge women woman all the time. To this day, she's still doing that, writing books and coming back to the basics and the principles. So if you're married, wife, and if you haven't in a while asked your husband, what's one thing I can do to help you today? I think that's biblical. And she was a wonderful model of exemplifying that and it's hard to do you know you mean every day she did it every day every day for 50 years yeah she's been doing it every day for 50 years well that's hard yeah it's a discipline develop well what about the man when does he get to help well that's chapter three we'll get there just dealing with the text here what god's intent was a helper and then uh so it goes on verse 18 that perfect partner is going to be a helper that's going to be her role uh again it's not inferior it's adam needs help it's like me. I'm married. Whoa, I need help. I don't have the gift of singleness. Uh, I'm half of what I can be before God. I need help with everything. And God gave me a helper, a wife. So that's a, a blessed gift from God. They're willing to embrace their role as the woman of God. Then he goes, well, what kind of helper? Someone who will be there, but it's got to be the perfect helper uh, and that's what that phrase is, suitable for him. The New American Standard says that this helper will be suitable for the man. Suitable. King James says, what kind of helper? Well, an help meet for man. Help meet? What does that mean? I have no idea what that means. Forget, scratch the King James on this this verse, that phrase. That is not helpful. It probably meant something 500 years ago. But it doesn't help us. New King James, what kind of helper? A helper comparable to him, comparable to him, similar to him. One that complements him. That's getting closer to the Hebrew phrase. What kind of helper for the man? Well, the New English translation says a helper who corresponds to him. That's legit. Corresponds. In other words, it's appropriate. He co- the, the woman corresponds to the man. In other words, it's another human helper. It's not an animal. Those were insufficient and inadequate and inappropriate. It's a human helper. The New American Standard NIV say, what kind of helper? A suitable helper, appropriate, and will meet the needs for which God creates the woman. The ESV says that, what kind of helper? Well, a helper fit for the man which implies humanity, sameness, continuity, unlike the animals, but also the idea of fit. There's a nuance there of a little different, but complements the man. It's like a key that fits the door lock on the door. That's exactly the imagery here that's being communicated. Um, One Hebrew scholar, probably one of the greatest Hebrew scholars alive today, Dr. Robert Alter, from he was at Berkeley University for over 50 years, still frequents the campus. I was privileged to meet him a couple of years ago and spend time with him and talk in his office. We talk Genesis. We talk Hebrew. We talk translation of verses. He's written many books. He's Jewish. So he was speaking Hebrew from the time he was in the crib. And he's been a world-class Hebrew scholar for over 50 years. And he said on this verse, this phrase, where King James says, a help meet for him, quote in his commentary on genesis dr robert alter says the hebrew here is notoriously difficult to translate that's why every single english translation has different phraseology they're all trying to get in all the nuances the problem is the word for helper we said is easy to understand but the word suitable for him that word that's the problem because what moses did he took two prepositions and joined them together and made a new word You won't find that word anywhere else in the Old Testament or in the Bible. He invented a word with two prepositions. It's hard to imagine. Do we even do that in English? Take two prepositions. And literally in the Hebrew, you could translate it this way with these two prepositions joined together. God would make a helper according to before him. Excuse me. According to before him. That's literal. What does that mean? Well, that word before many times is in the presence of in front of uh before someone standing right there the the picture is eye to eye with adam god would make a helper that is eye to eye with adam because every other creature that came out was not eye to eye with adam was not suitable standing face to face it would be the perfect complement but not identical so perfect complement is a good way to say it, that God promised to make a helper that was a perfect complement to Adam. In other words, it wasn't going to be another male. It was going to be human, but not a male, someone who would complement the male. Men and women are different. Newsflash, people, men and women are different. That's Genesis 1, verse 26 and 27, when God said, I will make humanity, I will make Adam. Let us make Adam in our image. That's the word there for Adam, or man, means humankind. I'm going to make humankind and I'm going to make humankind in our image, the image of the Trinity. And then verse 27, he gets specific. The image of humankind will be male and female. Now I don't think we even talked about those two words in Genesis 127. Male and female. Those are two totally different, unique Hebrew words. They aren't even connected. They have no common root, no common etymology. They don't, no cognate that is shared. Those two words male means male man male xy all throughout the old testament and female genesis 127 always means female the 30 times it's used in the old testament male and female that's it there are only two genders they are totally different god made them god determines gender it can't change that's reality and that reflects the image and the glory of god deviating with that tampering with that redefining that skews the image of God that is blasphemous That's actually an attack on the very nature and character of God because male and female together in, from God's point of view And his design was to reflect the very nature of God in my image So a practical implication from that is you know this newcomer 10 years ago people weren't talking about chant transgender and identifying this and that I'm xy I was born that way, but you know, i'm just gonna identify as uh, something else that's new. And that's not just humanly engineered. That's an attack on the creator, God. That's an attack on the truth of his work. That's an attack on the Savior. That's an attack on the judge. Clearly. So going back here, God promises to make the perfect helper for man, and he does. And creates this, Beautiful, divine partnership between man and woman. Now, those of you that are single, you ladies that are single, maybe you have the gift of singleness or you're you're not married. Maybe you were previously married and you can reflect back and thank God, thank you, Lord, for allowing me to be a a partner that helps somebody. Or maybe you still have a desire to be married and, and you need to trust the Lord with that as we talked about last week. So let's go on to point number two. So that very first point, a very important one. God's plan for marriage, partnership. Uh, Point number two, verses 21 to 23, God's provision in marriage. The perfect complement, verses 21 to 23. So God's going to meet that need. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep. So God's doing everything in this passage. Uh, Verse 18, the Lord God said. And then in verse 19, the Lord God formed. And then in 21, the Lord God caused. And then verse 22, the Lord God fashioned and God's doing everything. He did it. Literally, he did these things. It's not evolution. It's not some process. God did it. The Lord got it. He uses his personal name. It really happened this way. And God was intentional. He's going to meet man's need in the most perfect way, according to his design. God's provision in marriage. Provision. Marriage is a provision. At least that's God's intent. It's a gift. It's a blessing. We talked about that last week. He who... Finds a wife, finds a good thing, and obtains favor from the Lord, his blessed provision. Verse 2, 21 to 23, let's look at those. The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man or Adam. Deep sleep, that's kind of like when God put Abraham to sleep. Genesis 15, it's kind of like when uh, Jonah fell asleep. the Book of Jonah, he was so deep in sleep, he didn't even wake up from the crashing of the waves when he was on that boat. This is a supernatural sleep that God did instantaneously. He totally puts Adam under. Adam is going to be totally unconscious and doesn't realize what's going on as God the surgeon operates on Adam. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and so he slept. Then God took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh of that place. So in terms of literal Hebrew and the best translation, it's then the Lord God took one from his side. It's not ribs. That word is not rib. The word there is just side. It's most frequently translated as side. And it's used most frequently in describing Moses, the same author, describing the tabernacle and also some references, I think, in Kings under Solomon describing the temple and how they were built, how the tabernacle was built, how the uh, Ark of the Covenant was built and how the temple was built and that the side, the side, it keeps referring to like a big piece of cedar wood that was used as a piece From floor to ceiling in the temple in the days of Solomon, a piece of it and how they were, all these pieces of cedar went from floor to ceiling all throughout the temple to hold up. It was the superstructure to hold up the framing. So literally God took from the framing of Adam. So when the King James translators were reading this, God took from his side the side of Adam. Well, what's in the side of Adam that's kind of like framing and Oh, probably one of his ribs. Could be. So that makes sense. I understand why they said rib, but literally God took from the side of the man. He took, but one from the side of the man. One what? Well, one rib. That's why they're thinking rib, because the word one is there. One of his from the side. But it took God took more than just the rib, just the bone. Because when Adam gives his poem here in a second... He says, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. God also took some of Adam's flesh, not just his bone. That's what it says. Big chunk out of his side. Literally did this. This is not a myth. This really happened. Will Adam have a scar in heaven? I don't know. I'm going to look for it. Jesus has scars in his hands still, according to the book of Revelation in heaven. Why? An eternal reminder of how we got there. That was our entrance into heaven. Some people say that's the only man-made thing in heaven. The scars on Jesus' hands that are still there in his glorified body. So God's glorious provision. Uh, so he takes from the side, and then he closes up the flesh at that place. Adam is asleep during this whole time. Verse 21, so the Lord God caused, uh, 22, the Lord God fashioned, built, made, into a woman, the rib which he had taken. This is the only thing that God makes from another living entity or being. When God made the plants, he, they were made from the earth. He said, Let the earth bring forth vegetation. And so the plants were made from the earth, from dirt. And when God made the animals, reiterated it twice, that God made animals out of dirt, from the ground. And when God made Adam, he made him out of dirt. So every living thing was made out of dirt, except the woman. Ladies, you're special. Women uniquely made, directly by God, but from another living being, not from the dirt. How special is that? There's a lot of significance to that, that the woman was made or built directly by God. So it's the first woman is just sacred in God's image. Made into a woman, the Lord God fashioned into an isha, I-S-H-A, an isha. What's an isha? Well, Adam's going to tell us. Woman. Lord God made a woman out of a rib or out of literally Adam's side, the flesh and bone, which God had taken from Adam. And then he was done with his masterpiece, this woman. He brings the woman to Adam. Adam wakes up. He's out of surgery, feeling good, not groggy. This is divine anesthesia. God doesn't make mistakes. He's totally conscious. And then God brings, this is like wedding day. Who's the father of the bride? God. It's not two animals coming down the aisle this time. It is God, however he did that, and brought the woman to the man. I wonder how long the aisle was in the church that day. And then Adam has got his gaze upon this woman. And then he just bursts out with this exclamation or this emphatic, spontaneous phrase that actually is a Hebrew poem. This is the first time that uh, we see poetry in the Bible, formally, and it's Adam, and it's his first words about this woman that God brought. And the man said in verse 23, this is now bone of my bone." And literally, the Hebrew says, this at last is now bone of my bone." This at last, finally. In other words, having to see all those other animals who were not suitable for him, at last, this is a glorious thing. This is now bone of my bones, there's the rib, but also flesh of my flesh. She shall be called Isha, I-S-H-A. Why? Well, because she was taken out of Ish, man, not Adam. So the word for man, Adam, in verse 22, but then this is a different word for man in verse 23, Ish. Ish and Isha, man and woman. What does Isha mean? It only means one thing, from the man, derived from the man, came from the man. What was the first woman's origin? She came from man. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians 11, 8, when he's talking about roles in marriage, roles in the church, God's hierarchy, either before and after the fall. It doesn't matter. It's the same. He says that the man is the head of the wife. The man is the leader in the relationship. The woman is the helper. Why? And then Paul gives us the reason. Because, and he goes back and alludes to this passage, because the woman was taken from the man. That's what woman means. Esha. And it's very significant that the woman was taken from the man literally because it preserves uh, the continuity between man and woman. The fact that God made The first woman, out of Adam, out of a man, speaks of her humanness, her humanity. Really, her equality with Adam as a man, made in the image of God. Equal dignity before Almighty God as a fellow human being. So there's a sameness there by virtue of the fact that she was created from the man. As a matter of fact, there's more sameness there than there's ever been in any other two humans on planet Earth because literally that means she had the same DNA. But there's also a difference that's preserved there because she's the perfect complement. We already saw that. The suitable helper, the complement, the one who's comparable but not identical. So she's the same. She's equal. She's a human. Speaks of her nature, her origin, her value before Almighty God, her value as a human being, the sacredness of her life. But at the same time, she's created differently than Adam. Adam. She has a different function from Adam. She was created at a different time from Adam. She wasn't created before Adam at the same time as Adam. She was created after Adam, following Adam. That is significant. Paul talks about it and says that in 1 Corinthians eleven eight. Man is the leader of the relationship. Woman is not. The woman is the helper. Why, says Paul. He goes back again here. He says, for the woman, Adam was made first. The woman was made for man. The man was not made for the woman. These are transcendent, binding, supernatural reasons that define our very roles and our very existence and our very identity as male and female. And we aren't to resist that, we're to embrace that, especially as as Christians. It's God's design, living in his will. So he brings this, and keep in mind, you know, Adam is there, it's not good for him to be alone. And... There's no sin yet. So brides usually look their best on their wedding day. That was true of Eve. She was freshly made. She is without sin or defect. By the way, Adam and Eve were created as adults. They're fully functioning. They're capable of having sexual intimacy. They speak and talk. They are rational. They communicate with God. They talk with one another. They write poems. That's very sophisticated. Try it sometime. Write a good, it's hard to write a good poem. So they're fully cognizant adults, and she is perfect without flaw. Not only that, she has no clothes on. How exciting is that for Adam on his wedding day? Moses even talked, or actually God even comments on that. So the man looks at his beautiful bride. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. It's about time. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of me. She is my partner. God, you fulfilled your promise that you said in verse 18. Thank you. First marriage, first wedding, perfect wedding, perfect couple, perfect bride, perfect groom. Perfect circumstances, perfect scenario, perfect family. God is the provider. Number three, going on to verse 24. After God's plan and his provision, then there's the priority of marriage, and that's leaving the parents, verse 24a. Okay, so now verse 24. Adam is not talking in verse 24. Adam was talking in verse 23. So is Moses talking in verse 24? He's going to make a commentary on what just happened. And he turns it into a divine, ongoing, transcendent, binding principle that's true even to this day and will be true until Jesus returns. With respect to the institution of marriage, it will not be eradicated the way God defined it. We know that from uh, Hebrews 13. The institution of marriage is to be honored by all. And anybody that messes with it, God will avenge. He will judge. He will preserve marriage. It will remain sacred verse 24 so the priority of the marriage so they have their wedding day they the exchange he kisses the bride go in peace you are now mr and mrs ish and the beginning of verse 24 for this reason for this purpose from now on this is the way it will always be who said this well according to matthew nineteen five, in the words of jesus god said this Moses wrote it down, but God said this. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother. Uh, leave, the better translation in the Hebrew is forsake. It's not just leave. You can kind of leave nonchalantly. You can leave and come back. Forsake is the accurate word. Forsake has the better nuances informing the reality of the way that word is used. Forsake, it's a its a stronger word, but that's literally what it is. By the way, it's in present tense. It shouldn't be in the future tense. So literally, for this reason, a man forsakes his father and his mother. Simple present tense. So a man leaves his father and his mother, and he joins his wife. Again, another simple present, not be joined, but joins. He joins his wife, and join is not strong enough. Every English translation has a different translation here. The best one is, there's one that bonds with, joined, hold fast to, united to. Hardly any of those are sufficient. Sticks to, cleaves to, is bonded to. The modern-day Hebrew word for glue comes from this word. Bonded to, that's a good one inseparable is the idea he will be bonded to his wife so that's marriage when a man is of the marrying age well how old is that well it's different i mean people are getting married later and later today for whatever reason that's probably not a good thing in terms of the society forcing that on the culture But in even some countries today, people get married when they're younger. In the Old Testament, no doubt, probably they got married a little bit when they were younger. Maybe in the teens or later teens, probably was not uncommon. And that's biologically, a man and woman are suited to be married at that time. And this is how marriage was initiated uh, in the Old Testament. God recognized this. When a man left his parents and he joined his wife, that was a marriage before Almighty God. They didn't have to get married in the church for it to be approved before God. People didn't get married in the church. There are no verses in the New Testament that say that a pastor needs to do the wedding. Did you know that? It's not in my job description. Nowhere to be found. I don't know where that came from. First and foremost, it's before God. If you're abiding by his principles. I think it's a good thing that churches recognize and do weddings. But that's not the only recognition of a legitimate wedding. Two unbelievers who get married before The local justice of the peace that that is legitimate before almighty god. That's a true marriage god created marriage And he created it for all humanity not just for believers not just for christians There are people who are not christians who remain married for 50 60 years who never cheat on one another and remain faithful Because human beings are made in the image of god and also common grace plays into that So the pattern of marriage is established here, uh This also plays into counseling a lot of times when I'm giving counsel to younger people. This is so common. This has been going on for decades. Uh, Even we had to deal with this to a degree, and you see it all the time. People are thinking about getting married, young people, and then, uh uh-oh, what do we tell mom and dad? Ooh, what do we tell your parents? Ooh, how are your parents going to react? It's pretty common. So many times... People ask me to do their weddings or marriage counseling. Okay, first question usually is, okay, so you're you're engaged now? Yeah. So what do your parents think of this? And then what do your parents think of this? Not that it's determined, but it's always interesting to know. You could have two believers and their parents aren't Christians. I want to know what the parents think, but that what their parents think is not necessarily the final say. But often there's a lot of conflict that comes with that and parents trying to resist this marriage. For whatever reason. And Christian parents many times quote to me the Ten Commandments. Chapter Exodus 20. Well, I don't want my son or daughter marrying this person. And my word stands because I'm a Christian. I'm the dad. I'm in charge of my son or daughter. I am the authority. And Exodus 20 says uh, you need to honor and obey your parents. Uh, yeah. Don't forget Genesis 2.24 says right here that a young man can leave his father and mother with God's blessing. So you can't just quote one verse. Both of them play into this, as well as a lot of other verses. And that could be a long conversation. And many times it's so complicated because of all the variables involved. You've got to pray. You've got to get God's wisdom. You've got to search all the scriptures and the full counsel of God. And the Godly wisdom and input. And sometimes be patient and take your time. and Let God lead. But this is true, so Exodus 20 needs to be balanced with this, that there is some autonomy given to the young man as he's growing up, and he can leave, forsake is the better word, forsake mom and dad to find a wife. And that's what the pattern was in the Old Testament. Man would leave, and he'd go find his wife. Mom and dad, here's my bride. A lot more complicated than that, but that's the foundational principle. So leaving parents. So the marriage relationship then becomes autonomous or independent from mom and dad. So once you get married, you're not obligated to obey your mom and dad anymore. You're you're change. You forsake. You forsake what? Not just proximity, living in their house, but loyalty. I'm not obeying my father anymore. I'm obeying my husband. I'm not obeying my mother anymore as the husband. I'm listening to my wife. Also, I'm not tattling to my mommy on my husband. Because we're one. Very practical. But the marriage relationship becomes the priority relationship. It's the priority. It's even, I already mentioned this, priority over the children. Uh, one pastor we had years ago that was very helpful, marriage pastor, he always told us that uh, you, are a, you don't need children to have a family. If you're married, husband and wife, you are a family. You're, you're a legit, bona fide family, husband and wife. You don't have to have kids to be a family. If you have kids, they're called a blessed addition to your family. And they're hopefully temporary blessed additions to your family. Because you want to raise them to become independent on their own, whether they have the, single, uh, the gift of singleness or to get married. And then when they leave, you, you get, your family is still intact. That's your now extended family. Marriage is the priority. We need to live accordingly. Then uh, the permanence of marriage is point number four, verse 24b. For this reason, a man shall forsake mom and dad. And then be glued to, inseparably, permanently. The idea there, in terms of the permanence, by the way, um, yeah, number four, the permanence of marriage. Joined, glued to, inseparable. Jesus talked about this. That was his point in Matthew 19, 4 and 5 about divorce. Because of this, Jesus quoted this passage and said, well, divorce shouldn't happen. Because God's intent or His ideal was that you stayed married for life. Now, Jesus did give an allowance for divorce, which was adultery, because he, he knew that sin was a reality. But God's ideal is that you don't get divorced. Some Christians hold the view that, oh, divorce, it's the worst sin there is, and, and you should never divorce under any circumstances, and then they quote that Old Testament verse where God said, I hate divorce. I'm thinking, I can think of 13 other verses where God says He hates a sin. I hate lying tongues. I hate deceiving eyes. These are quotes out of the Old Testament. God talking. As a matter of fact, God hates all sin. So to elevate divorce over every other sin, that's illegitimate. It's not representing Scripture accurately or even God. It's not the unpardonable sin. But the ideal and the intent from God's point of view is they never be separated through divorce. And by God's grace, That can happen. Paul also talked about exceptions as well. So the permanence. They'll be joined to his wife, glued to his wife, and more on the permanence. They shall become one flesh. They become one. There's that permanence. So the word there, ahad, is the Hebrew word for one. They shall become one. It's the same Hebrew word for Deuteronomy. Where the Shema where God is recognized as one, the Lord our God is one. Uh, The 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 Trinity, three persons, is one. So the word for one isn't emphasizing absolute singularity, but rather unity. A plurality with unity. It's like one our football team, we are one. We're we're united. As a married couple, we are one. As a church, we are one. We are united. That's the idea. So there's a corporate element involved, but it speaks of unity, a purpose before God. And that's what the marriage is intended to be. Even those two individuals, they become one in every conceivable way by God. And so the more oneness you have in your spouse, the more intimacy and the greater intimacy and friendship you're going to have with your spouse. But when you become married, you become one with your spouse. And by the way... Uh, that's true between unbelievers. If they get married, that's true of people who have sex or intercourse outside of marriage. When they do that, they are becoming one, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 6:16. 6, that that intimate act is an uh, it's a an act that is different than all other acts. And when it's out of marriage, it's a, a unique kind of sin. When two people come together that aren't married, you become one with that person. That's why Paul says, "Don't become one with the prostitute," otherwise you're actually doing this. You're becoming one with her as it mentions in Genesis 2 and you're intertwining your souls at the deepest and even a spiritual level and don't, as a Christian, bind yourself to a harlot because you're already connected to Christ and your only legitimate person to be binding to if you're married is your spouse. So the oneness there speaks also of that permanence. You need to be one with your spouse in all areas of life. Uh, sexually, Your spouse is God's gift to you sexually. She or he is the only one who's supposed to satisfy you. Nobody else. You're also one physically, ultimately, when you have children together, if God so blesses. But you're also one emotionally, socially, and every other conceivable way. At least you're supposed to become totally one. Your your spouse, really, in the end, is supposed to be your best friend, your partner. Then finally... The purity in marriage is number five. The purity in marriage, the boundaries of intimacy, they become one flesh. And then God says this, and the man, Adam, and his wife, Esha, they were both naked. Very significant here. This is the only time in the Bible, in the Old Testament, where the Hebrew word for naked is used positively, not negatively. Every other time naked is used, it is a euphemism for illegitimate sex, mostly in Leviticus. Here it is pure. Why? Because there's no sin. Is totally pure they're looking at each other they're naked. There is no lust. There's no manipulation. There's Nothing there There's no shame. There is no guilt. There's no inhibitions Just pure sweet enjoyable from God the Man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed no guilt whatsoever And that was god's intent Well, wow, That's all these things doesn't describe my marriage. Yeah, it doesn't describe mine either. Why is that? Well, because unfortunately we've got to turn to chapter 3 now. That's where everything got messed up. The world got messed up. You got messed up. I got messed up. Your marriage got messed up. Your spouse got messed up. Your kids are messed up. The world in which you live is messed up. Your church is messed up. That's the bad news. So we're going to chapter 3. Fortunately, chapter 3 has verse 15 in it. It's where the Messiah, the Savior, is introduced after everything gets messed up god has a solution and then we'll talk about our marriages our families and god's biblical solution before we have communion together i just want to just zip through this list here these are practical implications that we have gleaned from genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2 about marriage family life and gender are you ready don't write them down there's too many these are just truths that come right out of scripture number 1 adam and eve were real people And don't let anybody tell you otherwise. They were the first two people. God made only two genders, male and female. God determines your gender, not you or me. Only male and female together reflect the full image of God. Man was made first, then the woman. Man was incomplete without the woman. Woman was made from man. Woman was made for man. Woman was given to man by God. Woman was named by man. Woman is equal to man as a person. Woman is different than man. By God's design. In purpose and function. Man had authority over the woman. When he named her. But Paul reminds us in First Corinthians 7. That each spouse has authority over each other's bodies. It's a reciprocal relationship. Only, so when I say man has authority over the woman. He named the woman. He was created first. She was created from him. That just speaks of his role as leader. He is the leader in the relationship. So here's the most basic advice I could give from Scripture about the roles of man and woman to help our marriages. Man is the leader and woman is the helper. Everything else flows from that. Only a woman can complete a man. A man can't complete a man. A woman can't complete a woman. Three women can't complete a man. The man and woman together are one before God. God made marriage. God defined marriage. God protects marriage. God blessed marriage. Marriage is the priority relationship in human relations. Marriage is permanent in this life. Marriage is pure before God. Marriage is monogamous as created by God. Marriage is heterosexual as created by God. Marriage is sacred as intended by God. Marriage is complete in terms of purpose of humanity at the most fundamental level. This marriage was perfect before there was sin and then finally marriage in this life Ultimately, we learn later is a picture of a greater reality when the church of jesus christ is married to jesus christ in glory And you're all invited to that wedding if you know jesus That'll be a glorious day another we won't see a perfect wedding again until that happens That'll be glorious indeed Well, with that, we have the privilege now to to take communion together or to celebrate communion. So if you are a Christian this morning, you truly know Jesus Christ. You don't have to be a member of our church. But if you know Christ, you are invited to celebrate and partake of communion with us. I do want to read a little reminder to have our thinking informed from God's point of view of the significance of communion and the attitude that we are to take communion with. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul tells us the purpose of communion. He mentioned a little bit about, in chapter 10, he called communion a blessing. And as, by the way, as the especially if you're visiting today, as the plate comes around, all you got to do is grab one cup because in the one cup is the bread and the drink, both in one cup. And just hold on to that for a second while I share a couple of verses. Then I'll give you a, a, just a minute to meditate and pray in our own hearts. And then after we meditate in our own hearts, then we'll partake together. Okay, so as the men are passing the elements around, let me just read from 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. Forward. Paul says, I received from the Lord, that's Jesus, that which I also delivered to you, uh, the guidelines of communion that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed when he celebrated the last Passover before his death, he took bread, as we have here. He gave thanks to the Father. Then he broke the bread and he said, this is my body which is for you, it's a figure, it's a metaphor, represents Christ's body, his life, the fact that he would die for sinners. Do this in remembrance of me. So that's what we're doing. We're remembering Jesus, who he was, and how he gave his life for us on the cross. We're remembering him. In the same way, Jesus took a cup after supper, saying this, is, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. The new covenant comes out of the Old Testament, a promise from God. It defines what salvation would be like in the Messiah. Part of the new covenant was God's promise to put the spirit of God in you. If you believe in Jesus, the spirit of God living in you. Amazing. Also that all of your sins would be forgiven. That was a promise of the new covenant. What a, what a blessed thing to celebrate this week at communion, all your sins being forgiven in Christ, his death and resurrection. That's part of the new covenant. This cup represents the new covenant in my blood. I died for you. Do this as often as you drink it. How often do we take communion? We do it often as a church. And we do it to remember the great and blessed work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Just a couple of other things about communion. This says what it is, what it is not. Uh, Jesus' body, Jesus is not present in the bread or in the cup. He's not present there. Jesus is not in the bread. Jesus is in you. That's even better, isn't it? And also, there's nothing mystical here. If you drink this, some of your sins don't get forgiven. All of your sins were forgiven through Jesus' death on the cross 2,000 years ago, if if you belong to him. So we don't earn the forgiveness of God by doing this. This is not a a means of grace, the way some people use that term, meaning this is how we get forgiven of sin. Is it a gift of grace from God? Yes, to be reminded of the, the awesome work of Christ on our behalf. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.